Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of the Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Professor Karen Dawisha of Miami University of Ohio, the author of one of the most well-researched, penetrating, insightful, and in this interviewer's view, terrifying books on the criminal regime that currently leads Russia today. The title of the book is Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia? Ms. Dawisha is the Walter E. Havikers Professor of Political Science in the Department of Political Science at Miami University in Ohio and the Director of the University's Havikers Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies. Professor Dawisha, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure, Ben. We spoke a little bit prior to this interview. I was mentioning the fact that the news cycle on Russia, forgetting about oil prices and the ruble and everything else, is moving very quickly. So it's fitting that today we're talking in light of the fact that Alexei Navalny and Oleg Navalny are two individuals who have been harassed by the Russian government. And as news came out today, one of them was sentenced to a suspended sentence of three and a half years on charges of fraud. And his brother was put in jail right before the new year and between Christmas and the new year, likely when the Russian regime probably thought folks might not be paying as much attention. Tell us a little bit about the Navalny brothers and this story more broadly. Well, it's a, a pretty simple story in the sense that uh, Alexei Navalny is a major and very significant political opponent to the Kremlin, to Vladimir Putin, and Oleg Navalny is a non-political uh, member of, of the society. He simply happens to be the brother of, of Alexei. He has no political background or experience and w- was involved in, you know, doing business and keeping hearth and home together and got caught up in this. And he has, as we heard today in a pretty devastatingly cynical and shocking move, they actually took uh, a leg into, um, they sentenced him to three and a half years in a, in a labor colony which is hard labor in Russia, uh, and put Alexei Navalny under a suspended sentence. With, we understand, the continuation of his house arrest, he has not, quite illegally, he has not been allowed to leave his two-bedroom apartment in Moscow since February. And they're going to continue this. So, And he's also now being caught up in yet another criminal case. So it's quite clear that they... uh, are giving him the signal, we've got your brother as a hostage and we're going to keep you in the legal uh, cycle uh, indefinitely. Now, Putin shares broad popularity, at least based on the polls that we see in the West uh, within Russia. So question for you, why is it that Alexei Navalny in particular, and for background, he's a lawyer, he's an opponent of the Putin regime, Why is it that he poses such a big threat to Putin that Putin feels a need to crush a blogger and an opponent of his regime? Well, he's much more than a blogger. I mean, his political activity has been reduced, I would say, to blogging. But he was willing to run as an opponent to Putin in the presidential elections. He was not allowed to run. He was allowed to run against the current mayor of Moscow, who is a Putin appointee, 
um, and he got a minimum of 600,000 votes. Why I say a minimum is that those are the number of numbers of votes that they that even the regime admitted that he had received. Goodness only knows how much he actually received. So there there are at least 600,000 people who went to the polls on the day of the election for mayor and voted for Navalny. I think that really puts pay to the idea that Putin is a supremely uh, untouchable leader. And, and the sheer fact that Putin, and we, we have to believe, given the way the regime works, that all of these core decisions about Navalny are taken by Putin, uh, Putin must be quite scared of Navalny to engage in this kind of level of activity. Why is that? Uh, Navalny's charismatic, very charismatic. He's a great speaker. He has shown his ability to organize people. He believes in civil society. He believes in all the core values <laughs> that Putin doesn't agree in. And he's not a, I would say, a pushover, European-style, liberal Democrat. He is rather nationalistic in his political orientation. So this specific example is a good window into many of the themes that you talk about in Putin's kleptocracy, whether it's suppression of dissent or electoral fraud, likely, uh, likely underreported even, uh, in addition to the fact that Basically, Putin has implemented this vertical structure, what you describe in the book as manual control, where effectively every single major decision ultimately emanates with him, or if it doesn't, it probably organically flows from the cronies and the cabal around him that has risen up over time. So taking all that into consideration, tell us a little bit about why every American should read Putin's kleptocracy, what this kleptocracy is and why Americans should be concerned with an authoritarian dictator like a Putin if his primary interests, at least publicly, seem to be only, and I disagree with this portrayal, I should say, but publicly at least is that there's a revanchism and basically he wants to bring the band back together and rebuild the Soviet Union and Soviet power. Right. So, you know, I, I should start by by telling your your listeners that I didn't set out to write this kind of book. I set out to e explore when the question, when, when was it that they, the, the Kremlin people, decided to do what they clearly have done? You know, in the West, we have for the last um, 15 years regarded democracy as something that is struggling in Russia. And so... I, I, I would say I, I had a realization about five years ago that the, the people in the Kremlin are not struggling to build democracy. They are building another kind of regime, an authoritarian regime which is self-serving, which is based on uh, loyalty to, to Putin, uh, silence of, uh, about how the system works, and massive predation and corruption. And there are winners in the system, the group around Putin, and there are losers in the system, and that's everybody else. So I set out to find out when did they decide to do this. And 
the, the, the answer that I got to after doing a lot of research was that this was the plan from the very beginning, that we, we are wrong in the West to see the Putin regime as a regime that stumbled into or got pushed into an authoritarian corner by, let's say, you know, neoliberal or liberal policies of the West. No, this was their policy from the very beginning. And in the meantime, we were either looking into Putin's eyes and seeing his soul under George Bush or in, involved in a reset under President Obama. Both policies had the wrong assumptions at their heart. We didn't see this regime as a regime which is not only seeking to reestablish an authoritarian Soviet-style state, but also establish a state in which the top people are themselves massively corrupt and are in bed with criminal elements. And those criminal elements are undermining our own system. It's a very huge danger to Western financial systems not to recognize what's going on in Russia. And so, in effect, for example, they could make the Sony hack to the degree to which it actually was carried out by North Korea, and now that looks like it may be in doubt. But that would look like child's play compared to what the Russians can do, given how embedded they are in all of the great corporations, and not to mention likely their infiltration of governments throughout the West. Well, yes. I mean, I, I clearly cyber, cyber warfare is something that the Russians are uh, quite advanced in and quite good at. They still are producing great software people and IT people, and many of them are leaving the country and working in Silicon Valley, but some of them are staying and working for the Kremlin. So they have a, an advanced capability. As, as one example that's been well-researched, uh, in Estonia, a country which is now part of NATO several years ago, uh, the Estonian government took a decision to relocate, this is all they did, to relocate a statue that commemorated and uh, valorized the Soviet uh, victory over Nazi Germany. In response, the Kremlin took down the Estonian uh, internet and the entire Estonian banking system. This is in response to the move of one single statue. So they're quite serious about this capability. They're quite serious. Now, you talk about the original view, I guess, in the West, which I imagine our listeners probably would take the original notion that Putin might be a neoliberal or, you know, be implementing some sort of benign state capitalism, probably in the same vein that they take the notion in the West that Mahmoud Abbas is a moderate or Hassan Rouhani in Iran is a, a legitimate peace partner. So I think our readers would probably be skeptical of that from the start. What I don't think our listeners and readers may be familiar with is Putin's background as a KGB agent in Dresden and then working as a deputy for the mayor in St. Petersburg, which are always portrayed as being sort of not serious positions in the to the degree to which Putin wasn't a, a very senior person in intelligence and he didn't have a very senior position in the St. Petersburg government, at least superficially. I found this part of your book fascinating. Tell us a little bit about the groundwork that he laid for his rise to power in these two positions. Right. So it, it is fascinating to me that 
a lot of the framing of Putin's background sees sees him as this, you know, not very influential, not very important figure. Um, but I really document the fact that he, I mean, he wasn't a general. Uh, he he was not the head of station in Dresden, but he was brought along by people who were at the very top. He was, uh, for example, a member of the uh, Communist Party Executive Committee for the Soviet Union and for all of East Germany. Um, he was involved in a running of a spy ring. So he was somebody who had um, our attention for sure. And the same thing in St. Petersburg. I, I know from my interviews and I document that uh, Western intelligence services were aware of his activities, I would say his criminal activities and his corrupt activities, but found it hard to get um, the political powers that be, both in the Moscow embassy and in the State Department and in the White House, to pay attention to this aspect of what was emerging in Russia, where you had the K KGB formally being dissolved after the Soviet Union collapsed, but all of those people informally uh, maintaining a series of connections so that they would be prepared for a revanche and, and, and doing business, and doing business with each other, but also doing business with the criminal underground. Uh, th there were several criminal uh, cases opened against Putin personally in St. Petersburg, and these cases were suppressed when he became president. So there were people in Russia, there were in, in the, at, in the, at the federal level, and there were journalists in Russia in St. Petersburg who knew what this guy was. And it, it's a story we just missed. One element of his time in St. Petersburg that I found most fascinating was that, in a sense, if you thought of Putin as a sort of mob boss at that time, he was in control, it seems, of all of the economic deals that were made with the West. So he had interactions with Procter & Gamble, with Coca-Cola. I would imagine at that time, and you can tell me if I'm wrong in the chronology, but Siemens as well was probably a massive corporation with which Putin dealt because he was in charge of all the licensing when it came to imports and exports right. through St. Petersburg. Right. Does that have a residual impact to this day? And what are the implications and ramifications of Putin sort of being the gatekeeper to Russia from over a decade ago? Are these businesses complicit, in effect, with a criminal regime? Uh, well... Procter & Gamble currently has a $6 billion a year business in Russia. I, I looked at the Procter & Gamble case quite closely because it was actually Vladimir Putin who signed the first registration documents for, for Procter & Gamble in St. Petersburg. Um, I, and I, you know, I, I really follow this because they're, they're based in Cincinnati, so I'm quite interested in this connection and talked to the person who actually brought Procter & Gamble into Russia. Um, I think Procter & Gamble is the exception that proves the rule. And I think there are other American companies that 
got in early and managed to set up relationships in Russia that were pretty free of um, corruption. They've, they've got a corporate culture now in Russia that is very unaccepting of, of giving or taking of bribes. Now, that is very different from Siemens. Siemens, uh, and this is detailed in the book, paid the, had to pay, agreed to pay, the largest ever fine in U.S. government history for, its, um, for RICO violations, uh, for, well, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations, uh, for its activities in five countries, one of which was Russia. And Siemens bribed its way, clearly, to the top, and was very involved in setting up its links via um, the, their representative in St. Petersburg, a guy called Shamalov, who is a very good friend of Putin. And so they had that connection th- uh, to Putin through Shamalov from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, there's just huge skims that took place, and that's how they gained market share. And I think in, in general, one could say that one of the reasons why the German, why German companies enjoyed such a favorable position in Russia in the last 20 years is that they didn't have the skids on this kind of behavior that American companies had. That's not to say that there weren't missteps by American companies. Uh, there were. The Bank of New York is 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 a great example, which was proved proved in court. You know, seven billion dollars were admitted to as being laundered by the Bank of New York from Russia mafia. So there were there were misdeeds, but not not an in industry. So we've sort of laid the groundwork. His time as a KGB agent, who had more power than is, I think, typically portrayed. And then working as a deputy for the mayor in St. Petersburg. Now, that mayor in St. Petersburg ultimately lost, Sobchak is being his name, ultimately lost in another run for office in 1996. And Vladimir Putin was out of a job, yet in three and a half years, he would rise to prime minister and ultimately president. How did he rise so quickly? I mean, it's a, it's a great story because he was the campaign manager for Sobchak. So here you have Vladimir Putin's really only exposure to a democratic election was one in which he lost. <laughs> and I think he learned a lot from that, which is, you know, you don't, you don't leave these things to chance. You, you really organize elections quite differently in advance you play all the, the games, you, you have a whole basket full of tricks. And so what, not only did, he, did his boss, Sobchak, uh, lose, but one of his big rivals won. So a, a man called Yakovlev, whom Putin named as a Judas. So he had to get out of St. Petersburg, and he went to Moscow, and he was helped there by a series of people who were more senior uh, than him to get good jobs, and he started to move his way up. The, the, there were people who were, let's say, uh, openly helping Putin, who um, we know of and we na- I name in the book, but there was also clearly 
a, a series of people in, in the former KGB, now the renamed FSB, who pulled him along and at one point um, helped to maneuver him into becoming head of the FSB. And when he became head of S- FSB uh, in 1998, then it was just a short jump after that to um, becoming prime minister and then acting acting president in December of 1999. In your view, because Rus- Russians and especially the intelligence forces in Russia are masters at deception, mm-hmm. subterfuge, subversion, very calculating and strategic and, and probably ruthless in a way that's I think hard for probably most Americans to even make sense of. To that end, there had to be hundreds, if not thousands, of other people with backgrounds very similar to Putin's who were all striving, I imagine, to gain power. So how was it that Putin ended up at the top of the heap? Was it just that someone had to win? Or was it that there was some preconceived plan that enabled him to rise up in your view how can you attribute his success given all the other people likely gunning for the same positions as him i i I think that's a a great question and it's a question that uh i i don't have the complete answer for but this is my my view my view is that the most senior people in the kgb when they saw the beginning of the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, and remember Putin was in an East European country, uh, really hit the panic button and became concerned that Gorbachev, who was regarded by them as, as an enemy, Gorbachev would do the stupid thing, which was to create a multi-party system and to separate the Communist Party from the state, make them compete in an free and fair election against other parties and and eliminate their their ability to use state funds so they started to move money out of the country but they also started to identify people who could um, be part of the next generation of leaders in my view Putin wasn't the only one who was identified uh, they placed people who were coming back from Eastern Europe, uh, who had been in Poland, who had been in East East Germany, who had been in Hungary, uh, but especially in East Germany, uh, because they they regarded them as quite um, advanced in in the set of skills that you've already identified, (laughs) subterfuge, uh, running of money, running of agents, and so forth. Uh, remember, in the late 80s, East Germany became a home for international terrorists. Carlos the Jackal was based at one point in East Germany, Badermeinhof, the Red Brigade, and all of that. So they had a particular skill set. And they, when they came back to the Soviet Union, this is now beginning two years before the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were placed as advisors strategically to Democrats. So Sobchak was regarded as a big Democrat. And they tried to put these people up against and in the, in the service of open, open uh, Democrats who could then be controlled secretly. So when you look at 
other leading Democrats, they all had these guys who suddenly appeared in their entourage. So that there were there were there was a potential for more more than Putin to succeed, but Putin is the one who really proved himself. I mean, he's he's a, he did he's not just a adults who who obeys orders. He was part of a plan, but he had his own individual skills and capabilities, and he's shown that uh, in power. One of the more devious and to my mind, always fascinating parts of Putin's rise are the tragic bombings that occurred in Russia, mm-hmm. one of which, and this was either a botched one or we don't know, but in Ryazan, a bombing was, theoretically, it was thwarted, and police were tipped off to the fact that there were there were explosives in the basement of a building that would have gone off and killed dozens if not hundreds of civilians but it didn't happen talk a little bit about Ryazan and the terrorist attacks that occurred while Putin was rising to power in 1999 and prior to 2000 right I mean it's in my opinion uh, I reached the conclusion in the book and I did wow a lot of research on this because I call it uh one of history's great false flag operations. And to make that statement, it, it's kind of chilling to even th- imagine that uh, the security services of any country, no matter how horrible the regime, um, would set up bombs in the apartment buildings that went off while totally innocent civilians were sleeping. And this is what happened beginning in late August. Uh, Putin had just been named prime minister. He had been head of the FSB, very critical. So he was in a position to have ordered these things. I, I mean, we don't have a, his signature on a piece of paper, but he was in a position to order these things. And thousands were injured and 300 in, totally innocent civilians were killed. Now, then, a, a, and I want to correct a little bit the timeline that you laid out because I think it's important. Uh, then, this, the country being in a state of total panic with people on the lookout, you know, I would say citizen patrols everywhere, then two separate uh, independent civilians saw something happening outside their own apartment building in Ryazan, one of whom was a veteran. And they saw a a car with three people inside that was taking sacks into their building in the middle of the night. They investigated and called the bomb squad. The bomb squad uh, arrived found a bomb with a timer due to go off at dawn. They then called the local FSB and the police who, who evacuated the whole building, sealed off the area, and put out an all-points bulletin for three people in a white, uh, white car. They had the, they had the uh, license plates and everything. 
and a, a vigilant, or we could say Snoopy, telephone operator at the local telephone exchange uh, intercepted, remember this is before cell phones, intercepted a call from uh, two FSB headquarters in Moscow from someone saying that they, uh, they were unable to complete the, the task successfully and they are now being hunted. And they were told to split up and get out of the area. So they had this call. These three people were detained by the local police, upon which they showed their FSB IDs and were released, and they were never charged. So we have all of that. And then, and then on top of that, there was a telephone program uh, in early 2000. This is when Putin was already acting president, but he was not yet inaugurated. And there was still free television, I mean, independent television in Russia. And residents of, of Ryazan from this building stuck by their story. That the, and they had bomb disposal people from Ryazan, the local FSB, stuck by their story. But within months, this whole story was hush, hushed up. The FSB said that this was a civil defense exercise and that they were testing people's readiness. But, you know, no civil defense exercise would be announced without the cooperation of the local security services. So this explanation simply does not hold water, in my opinion. That's the conclusion I come to in the book. And the reason is that, in, in my view, that they were trying to sow panic and then in that circumstance to create uh, an image of Putin as somebody who's resolute, who will do what is ever, whatever is necessary to protect Russia from the people who are, who are attacking it, and in that case, they blamed the Chechens, and they created the groundwork for the Second Chechen War, which was started by Putin soon afterwards. So sort of as a corollary to uh, Rahm Emanuel, who says, never let a crisis go to waste, if you don't have a crisis, create one and use it as a pretext to maintain and gain more power. Well, you can quote Rahm Emanuel all you want, but Rah Rahm Emanuel... <laughs> And no one in the United States has ever done this. I mean, this is something that was not even done by Saddam Hussein, right? I mean, I've studied these regimes pretty, pretty carefully. When I say that this is a false flag operation against the sleeping civilians of a capital city, of the capital city of that country, there are no such similar cases. Uh, Saddam Hussein gassed Kurds but they were in an uprising against him. That is no excuse, by the way. Uh, um, uh, Bashar al-Assad sent gas um, shells into the neighborhood of Damascus, but that neighborhood was in an uprising against him. These people were not in an uprising against the center. So I think this is, this is why we, we have to really see this for what it was, a, a really historic, historic um, action by a group of very cynical people to bring somebody to power that would uh, bring, bring them and their kind of regime uh, back. Since we're talking about a regime with this kind of mindset, 
I want to deviate just for one question, which is there have been long documented ties in a prior era between the KGB and various terrorist groups in the Middle East. Alexander Litvinenko talks about Ayman al-Zawahiri potentially being trained himself, Ayman al-Zawahiri being a formerly senior member of al-Qaeda, being trained in a, in a Russian province, I believe. Uh, and the first call that George W. Bush received from a foreign leader on September 11th was from Vladimir Putin. And Vladimir Putin became, at least for a time, what was considered an ally, I, I probably leave that in quotes, in the quote-unquote war on terror. Right. Do you think that there was any Russian involvement with al-Qaeda that you know of that's documented and or that Russia in one way or another could be linked to September 11th? I haven't followed that. I know there are, there are many similar conspiracy theories. I will say, I will say this, and this, this I think is a is serious uh, subject. It is vitally critical for the U.S. government to be very hard-nosed in analyzing what kind of crises Russia wants and what kind of crises Russian benefits from. So uh, we have one of the pe- people closest to Putin, who is an ex-KGB himself, Sergei Ivanov, who's currently head of the presidential administration, had been minister of, of defense, saying that he provided to the United States, that they provided to the United States, the coordinates for al-Qaeda training uh, grounds in Afghanistan. It is clearly in, it has was clearly in the interest of, the, of Russia to have the United States bogged down in Afghanistan. And while they're there, to kill off as many Chechen fighters who were volunteering, or Central Asian fighters who were volunteering for Al-Qaeda as possible. I think it's very similar today with ISIS. There are many, many Central Asian and Chechen fighters who fled out of uh, southern Russia, the, the Caucasus, and out of Central Asian regimes into Syria and Iraq. And it's very convenient for Russia to have us bombing them. We're doing their dirty work, and at the same time, we are turning international terrorism against the United States when many of those folks had been primarily against Russia. So that is an interest that Russia has that I think that we really need to keep in mind. And of course, the ancillary benefit to all of the chaos that's created in the Middle East, in addition to bogging America down and causing American casualties and casualties of Russia's enemies, is, of course, that that chaos can drive up the price of oil, which further accrues to the benefit of the Russian regime. Absolutely. No, I think that's a very good point, and it's a very serious point. In addition to that, I think it's quite fascinating to see that all of this crisis has not really worked in the way that Russia would have hoped or wanted, that the price of oil has not spiked as a result of the beginning of operations against ISIS. And there are many reasons why one would speculate for that, one of which is that Saudi Arabia 
and Russia are on very different sides of the coin, on, on very different sides of this crisis. Russia is a major supporter of Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, and Saudi Arabia is a major uh, opponent of that regime. And they're not going to take any action which is going to increase the chances of Bashar al-Assad surviving. And if it means that they pump <laughs> and keep the prices down to put pressure on Russia, of course it doesn't, they may also be doing that to put pressure on fracking in the United States, but it, it's, in, it's in their interest. And, and so it hasn't really worked to Russia's benefit. So while we're on these geopolitical topics and, and talking about oil and the like, how do you see the Russian regime playing it as the fallout begins on all the knock-on effects occur from the collapse of oil prices in addition to the substantial decline of the ruble? Do you see Putin using more crises to further consolidate power and put opponents in their place? Do the collapse in oil prices and the declining value of the ruble pose a threat to his regime, or is he going to come out of all this stronger ultimately? I, I, at the moment, my view is that Putin is behaving in a very paranoid way. Um, he's putting a lot of emphasis upon increased repression. Uh, he's taking a lot of money out of domestic coffers, uh, health, education, pensions, uh, to support his own inner circle, to keep peace amongst competing groups, uh, to bail these people out when the social situation in the country is so dire, is, a, is an act of, I mean, it, it reveals the regime for what it is. And he, he can only really keep peace um, by increasing the repression. You know, we started the conversation by talking about the Navalny uh, trial and the, the, um, the, the sentences that were meted out. But one of the things that is really shocking I was, as I told you before, I was actually up in the middle of the night watching the live feed from the hour before... Uh, the 9 a.m. announcing of the of the verdict, and as people were trying to queue up to get into the courtroom, there were five different security fences manned by five concentric circles of police that people had to go through. I mean, it's just unbelievable the the level of police mobilization. So, you know, this is, I think the way, the path that he's chosen, and it's going to be quite difficult for him to um, really deal with that if, if crises start breaking out. It, you can always put five circles around one building, but what if, what if, what if there are, are, are running pickets? How is he going to deal with that? What if he can't, what if people stop getting paid in the Urals? How is he going to deal with that? So I think he's got a he's bitten off more than he can chew. You, you write about one of his senior officials, Zolotov, right. and what was reported by a former FSB agent who then defected to the U.S. Ultimately, what was it that Zolotov told him about opponents of the Russian regime? Yeah, this is a a, a great story. So Zolotov had. Um, 
run the tribute system for Putin in St. Petersburg. He was the head of a private security agent agency. He had KGB background. He had been part of Directorate 10 in charge of the personal protection of top party leaders. So he had that kind of background. Putin took him to Moscow and made him his personal bodyguard. So he arrived in New York in summer of 2000 to set up security with um, someone else uh, for Putin's first UN trip. And uh, as part of that trip, he met with a guy who was he- who was the resident, head of the KGB station in New York, obviously an extremely important position. And what Zolotov didn't know is that this guy had already been turned and would in December defect to the United States. He wrote a book with uh, a longtime security analyst, Pete Early, and in that book he told the story that they went out to dinner in Brighton Beach, uh, and so there were two people from the from the residency in New York and two from Moscow, Zolotov being one of them, and Zolotov told them that they had planned to kill the current head of the, or the then head of the presidential administration to, to Yeltsin. And this is when Putin was prime minister and rising up to become, be named as the acting president. And, but they, uh, they realized that if they killed Voloshin, uh, they would have to kill others. And they said, and they, they realized that the list was too long. There were too many to kill even for them. So here you have somebody, Zolotov, who would be in charge of the black box, who, had a, who was in charge of a hit list. I mean, it's just a, an unbelievable situation um, that this person was head of Putin's personal uh, presidential bodyguard for 14 years, and he now has been uh, moved to be the deputy minister of interior in charge of all of Russia's internal security forces. So whenever there are these uh, mobilization of security forces, Zolotov, somebody who is personally very, very loyal to Putin, or at least Putin hopes, uh, is in charge of putting down of riots. You've been very generous with your time. So I just want to ask two more questions, and, and I'll try to keep them brief. You just mentioned the tribute system. One of the reasons it would seem to me that Putin would have a kill list that is in effect too long even for them is the fact that Putin and those who rose up with him and rode his coattails into power all became billionaires basically overnight. How did they become billionaires? What is the tribute system? And what has the end result of this been for the average Russian citizen? Well, I mean, that's, that's at the core of, of my book. And, you know, this is the way I think Putin operates and operated even in St. Petersburg. Putin is not, formally speaking, mafia. There is mafia in Russia. and There's Russian mafia in America. But he was never made, if, you know, using this American phrase. What he did was to make illegal activity legal, which is a far more useful thing. So 
he because he was as you as you said he was in charge of all the registrations of foreigners coming into into Russia into St Petersburg and all of the export licenses of stuff going abroad you didn't have to run the risk of illegally exporting if if Putin would sign the documents for you he could open the the border going and coming for money for goods for raw materials for uh, establishment of manufacturing facilities for it all and he's done that now on a massive scale in Russia as a whole so his signature is what makes things legal it's not the law and so his friends get no bid contracts for the olympics they can make 50 50 60 billion dollars off of all of these illicit contracts for roads that don't get built for buildings that don't get built for bridges to crimea that are not, are not are not emerging so he's able to uh, uh, give people the ability to operate with impunity and that is his contribution uh the moment that you engage in any kind of anti kremlin activity then suddenly everything you've done will be subject to true legal scrutiny and you'll be thrown in prison you'll have to run from the country so he doesn't uh, he he leaves the law for his opponents and for his friends he gives them complete ability to make money with impunity and you know just as the final idea uh credit suisse did a, a study last year of global wealth and one of the things they concluded was that in russia stability of wealth is higher than in any other country in the world so we think of the rockefellers or people who are old money in the united states as having pretty stable wealth under putin if you are one of the rich one of the 110 your wealth has been more stable than in any other country in the world that's that's something that he's delivered to this group which no democratic system is able to deliver last question in your view what ultimately is putin's end game putin's made himself a billionaire he controls russia and many of the satellite states in effect around russia is it ultimately to basically put russia back on the map as a balancing force or even a force that challenges the united states is it the ability to bring other nations to its knees and and that includes by the way mainland europe through the oil pipelines that russia has built there is it to along with russia to along with china rather and the jihadist groups bring down western civilization how do you see it i think uh Russia uh Putin's number one objective is to survive physically. Uh he he told his his uh the head of his PR uh Gleb Pavlovsky who's now split with him uh but who reported this conversation. He said to him, "Look, we know how it always ends in Russia. Uh if we lose power, they'll put us against the wall." and that's that's his number one motivation is to avoid physical harm to him and his group how he does that increasingly is through um expansionist moves 
uh, neo-imperial moves that force ordinary Russians to not demand what is their right, which is to live in a free country. So he creates this artificial enemy of the West, and he's using it very effectively. And I suspect that in the, sadly, in the new year, we will have another year of uh, probably being wrong-footed by this rather uh, adept regime. I mean, they, they, they are in the driving seat. Uh, we have NATO in the Baltic states, but we don't have much we can do to help the Ukrainian regime. So I, I would imagine that we will see more activity, more maneuvers in Ukraine. The name of the book is Putin's Kleptocracy, Who Owns Russia? And the author is Professor Karen Dewisha. And, and I urge all listeners and readers to pick up this book because it's eye-opening, it's fascinating, and it's vital that Americans understand who their enemies are around the world, how they think, and how they operate. And it's also chilling that, as you say, Putin's ultimate end goal is survival because people will ultimately resort to extreme measures to survive, and that's something we should all bear in mind going forward. Professor Dawisha, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for a great interview. My pleasure. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.